morning on verses 11 through 15, but I'm going to go back to verse 7 of Revelation chapter 22 to emphasize the quick nature of the coming of Christ as he delivers the words beginning in verse 11. John writes, recording on behalf of Christ Jesus, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down in worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. And this is where we'll focus. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we have seen already much to bless and encourage that you are a God who does wonderful things. You bring salvation in this time, between the times of your coming, in this age of the millennium in which the gospel goes forth by the Spirit and awakens the dead and gives them life. Oh Lord, may that happen even here, that you would awaken the dead, bring them to life, that you would move the saints out of their slumber, that you would, Lord, encourage those even now who are faithful, to remain faithful, for you are coming. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The depth of the rebellion and idolatry of Israel is touched upon one last time. As John writes, as he records the words of the angels, which are the words of Christ, that Christ is coming again quickly. That this warning that we find here in verses 11 through 15 is historical in nature. And though there are things that we can glean from it that are relevant to our time today and to the church in every age, this is a particular exhortation given to those who are at the cusp of the coming of the kingdom of Christ in the New Testament church with the destruction of of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, what is happening historically is John is writing right before Christ comes in judgment against the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And when that happens, there will be a clear manifest pouring out of God's displeasure upon those who have sinned the sin unto death. The sin, that is the sin unto death, is the sin of, the bla- of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is to deny the very reason for which the Spirit has been sent out into the world. That is to proclaim Christ the Redeemer. 
And when you hear that call, which you will hear today, which you have seen already in the waters of baptism, which we have sung, too late, you cannot escape it. The warning is there. Christ is coming. And as John the Baptist preached, as the prophets before him, as Christ himself preached, there is but one right response, and that is to repent in light of the coming of the kingdom of Christ. As the psalmist says in Psalm 2, kiss the son, make peace with the son, lest he grow angry with you as king, as we see in Revelation, and you perish, you experience his judgment. Now, the reason why I emphasize the historical nature is because even as we see here, it seems strange to us that God says, look, if you're already unjust, just stay that way. There is a very, very narrow window for repentance, for God's judgment is upon them. And so this morning, as we look at this text, verses 11 through 15, and the result, not only of God's judgment of the wicked, but the rewarding of the righteous, you end up with a city of righteous people and those outside the city wall who are unrighteous. The sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. Two points that I want to make. Number one, Christ is coming with reward. Christ is coming with reward. And then secondly, a city whose walls divide. A city whose walls divide. Now, as it relates to the wickedness of Israel and the coming of Christ's reward, we see verse 11. He who is unjust. Now, an unjust person is described as one who is later here filthy. He is left, she is left in sin because they deny the mediatorial work of Christ. Now, there are a number of ways that this can happen. Either there is an outright rejection of Christ, the Messiah, as we saw in Israel at the time of Christ's coming in the Gospels. And instead of welcoming Christ, they said what? Crucify him. Can you imagine that kind of response, right? If you're the kind of church that has an altar call. But if you do fail to embrace the Messiah and walk the aisle, as it were, but remain on the back row and go, crucify him. No, there it is. Who was that? So listen, I love the children's chatter. Parents, I know you go, ooh, man, this kid of mine is talking a lot. Here is what will happen when your children are here and they're talking. They are listening. And if you keep them in here and they don't stop talking, guess what they'll keep saying when they leave God's house? The things they hear here. So leave them as, you know. Unless it just goes completely haywire. I understand that moment. But yes, thank you. I know someone's listening. But don't repeat that, right, in the way that you shouldn't repeat it. The Jews saw Christ and they saw him not as redeemer, but as an impediment to their own rebellion. They wanted to rebel and remain in darkness. And so they were unjust. They were Filthy, they denied Christ, and time and time and time again, the prophets preached to them, John the Baptist preached to them, Christ preached to them, the apostles preached to them, and they didn't just put Christ to death, they crucified Peter upside down. And in many ways, the Roman Empire 
was less guilty or less heinous in their guilt in the denial of the Messiah because Rome didn't have the prophets. And it was the Jewish leaders of the day that were pushing for violence against the church. And so, in this historical setting, Christ speaks against the unjust and he says, It's over. The window is very narrow. Your chances are done. You have so denied me that you may as well just keep on sinning. Oh, that is a dangerous position indeed. They are written off. Now I know that may grate on the evangelical ears of the modern day Christian, right? But there comes a time when the chances, as we see them, of repentance are over. And here is a very clear example where that is the case. At some point in the mind of God, and according to his will, he says, no more. No more. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, 400 years before this time, Daniel speaks of a similar warning. In Daniel 12, verse 9, and he said, go your way. The Lord is speaking to Daniel, for the words are closed up. They are sealed unto the time of the end. Now, we've looked at that passage before. That time has now come. The words are open. We saw that in verses 6 through 10. Many shall be purified, Daniel writes, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. What is also exhibited here is the principle of God's sovereignty over our repentance. Now, this is what God has called me to do as a minister of the gospel. As Richard Baxter says, every time I climb into the pulpit, I preach as a dying man to dying men. Knowing that at any moment, as Edward says, like a spider that is dangling over the fires of hell, that thread may snap and you may be lost forever. So when the minister says, repent, you should not go home and say, well, I really would like to keep doing this thing I'm doing. Let me put that in my calendar for Friday, right? After I'm done with my liaison, after I've stolen what I need to steal, after I've worshipped these little gods and set up these idols in my home of the heart. When the call to repentance goes forth, what time is the best time to say, I repent in dust, cloth, and ash at that moment? Not only do we find this principle of warning and the call to heed that warning quickly, but we also see as it relates to sinfulness in our lives that sins quickly become habit, habit quickly becomes character, and our character becomes destiny. This is what Carpenter said on his commentary, in his commentary on this particular passage. At some point, you are the sum of your actions and your thoughts and your affections. And so as John speaks, he speaks of the wrath of God, or writes, he writes of the wrath of God poured out against those who continually, persistently say no. 
But what of us? Well, I have said already I'm convinced that Christ will not come soon. Now, that does not mean that you will not see him soon. That the kingdom of Christ, there is much work that remains to be done on earth for the sake of the building of the kingdom. And though Christ may tarry for thousands of years yet, you're not going to be here when that happens. And some of you are closer than the rest, right? There is one, by God's grace, who just entered this world. He just came through the front door and some of you will be at some point in the not too distant future escorted out the back. This is life. It is the rhythms of the generations that persist. And not only that, but you and I do not always see long days. We pray for it. But we should never say in response to the truth that we know that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. Okay, I'll deal with that later. How many, in fact, have said that? I'll get my spiritual house in order once I'm done sowing my wild oats. Now, positively speaking, why would you waste a moment to embrace the glorious life of salvation in Christ Jesus? Secondly, why would you risk eternity outside the glorious city of God? There will come a time. Open up! You could say that if you wanted to. And there will be an answer. The gates are closed. They're closed. All repentance should be immediate. Now, we have much to repent for. And we spend our whole lives looking at the thing the Spirit shows to us and says, See this? This is out of alignment with the will of God. This is filthy. This is wrong. That's why every Sunday we open the law of God, and if it is inconvenient to you, good. It's supposed to do a little bit of that goo. This is, I did this this week. And we should look at the Lord, as it were, remember his loving kindness, and say, I come to you in need of continual renewal. I need to be forgiven. And there is never a time in God's relationship with you where he says, no, no. Unless it is allotted to you according to God's will that that should happen. And for Israel in history, that time had come. And this is why the destruction of Jerusalem is so important to us as New Testament Christians. Not only does it signify the coming of a new era, the dawn of a new era, it shows us the penalty, it shows us the stakes, it shows us the consequence of Christ's coming in righteousness. But it is not only a warning to the wicked, it is also an encouragement to the righteous. Keep doing it. Be righteous so we find it here. Whoever is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Why? Because Christ is coming quickly. Now, historically speaking, as I have said already, I've labored this point throughout this series in Revelation, Christ is writing to the first generation of believers 
Those who were saved at Pentecost. Those who are ministered by the disciples. But whether you are righteous or wicked, what Christ will bring is the reward. What is that reward? Well, we go back to the Lamb's book of life. We go back to that moment in which Christ judges, as it were, where there are three books laid open. The book of the deeds of all men, righteous or unrighteous, the scriptures by which all men are judged, that's the standard, and then the Lamb's book of life. You and I, every deed, every thought, every word, every action, every intention, everything that no one else has ever seen or heard, that you wish to remain sealed up, all that is covered, Christ says, I will open it on that day. What a volume that will be of your deeds. And the extraordinary justice of God will be displayed when those who have committed offenses against Christ and deny him, they cannot stand in that record of injustice and filthiness and folly. But you and I, who are in Christ Jesus by his grace, if you are in Christ Jesus, will stand before the throne and as they open every deed you've ever done, righteous or unrighteous, And then your name is there. In the Lamb's book of life, that book trumps the book of your wickedness. Because you are sealed. You have been washed. Now what that means is what? Salvation is all of grace. And though we are justified as an act of God's free grace, our obedience flows forth from a heart that is transformed. And as those who are transformed, what is the word? Keep on obeying. Because one day Christ will come and he will give us reward, verse 12, according to our works. Justified forever. Not future justification apart from present justification but reward in accordance with our deeds. So the encouragement is what? Repent and obey. Now let's look at the city whose walls divide. The next verse, verse 13, Christ reminds us of who he is, of his authority, his lordship, and what he has come to do. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, The first and the last. It's three ways of kind of saying the same thing with great emphasis and clarity. Of this particular part, G.K. Bill writes, Christ's presence at and sovereignty over the beginning of creation and over the end of creation are boldly stated in order to indicate that he is also present at and sovereign over all events in between. And so when we read of God's providence... God is providential through the rule and reign of the second person of the Godhead. His identity is, I am Yahweh. Even as this is lifted from the book of Isaiah time and again, Christ says, I am Yahweh. That means that any religion that does not confess that Jesus is God gets you outside the walls. It isn't Christian. It denies the divinity of Christ, and therefore it does what? Well, what do we see in verse 15? 
Those who are idolaters. What happens to idolaters? They are cast into outer darkness. And so any supposed church that does not exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as God, as Yahweh, king and head of the church, equal to God the Father, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, is no church. It is what we often say in Presbyterian circles, a den of the devil. And it will not get you into the city. It will only get you cast out. And so these titles are essential in our reception and understanding of Jesus Christ. For Christ is the one called and blessed by the Father to judge. Christ is God, sovereign, eternal. And so he can judge. He is the only just judge because he died and was raised. And because Christ was dead, died in this world, and was raised in this world, guess what? He rules this world. And so maybe you've heard some pastors say that this world belongs to the devil. They're wrong. I wonder from what passage of scripture they're reading. Christ was raised in this world. He is king of this world. He is judge of this world. Satan is buried here. He has no power that is not granted to him by the king of this world. And yet, wickedness persists until the time that Christ comes and casts those who are even now afflicting the church beyond the walls of the city. And so, verse 14, a finer point is put on the issue of obedience. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And so, in verse 14, we see the elect. Those who are sealed, united to Christ Jesus, and as evidence of their union with Christ, that they belong to him. They obey him. They have fruit. Because they are planted by the river, that is the Holy Spirit, the river of life. And because of that, they bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. But then, verse 15... Outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now there are those within the city. They are the sheep, the wheat, those who are called and named and sealed by Christ. But those outside the city are the reprobate, the unjust, those who have not repented and heeded the warnings of the word of God. As I said already, there will come a time when Christ will open the books. That day has not yet come. But those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life are those who are outside the walls of the city. And they will not dwell with Christ, the Father, the Spirit, in peace for eternity. They will be cast into outer darkness. And though we have seen a very glorious and thorough description of the city of God, we saw those in previous chapters, chapter 21 in particular, there will be those who will be cast out. And they will live for all eternity under the weight and knowledge of God's wrath against their sins and what could have been done had they just heeded the call. An eternity of regret, of pain, of misery in the presence of God who burns in hot anger against them. What kinds of people are found there? 
Well, let's look. First, dogs. This is not an answer to the question of do dogs or all dogs go to heaven. This is a reference that is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 18. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 23, if you'd like to turn there, you can. If not, I'll turn there quickly. Concerning miscellaneous laws, beginning in verse 70, there shall be no ritual harlot. A ritual harlot is a temple prostitute. Of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel, you shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. The price of a dog here mentioned is the monies that a male gets by being a male prostitute. It is a derogatory term for homosexuality. Here, what we find is any deviance here more pointed as it relates to sexually immoral people that is related to same-sex perversion. What our world boasts in, what they pervert the rainbow towards, is what gets you outside the city. The LGBTQ plus community, the debauchery of those people, this is what God equates to dogs in the Old and New Testament. Now, if I were popular enough, I'm sure that would get me canceled, but I'm not, so who knows what will happen. But dear saints, here is where we are in the state of our culture. If our culture delights in it, you better be clear. It's probably the very thing that gets you outside the city walls. And right now, our culture is a culture that delights in being outside the walls of the holy city of God. Now, what about sorcery? It's those who practice the occult. It's those who do not worship rightly and seek wisdom from God but demons. What is a fornicator? Well, more broadly speaking, it's anyone who is sexually immoral, within or without the confines of marriage. What is an idolater? It's those who worship another god other than Yahweh. Those who love a lie. It's those who love to hear and spread slander. It's gossips. And then there are those who actually practice lies. So there are those who love to hear gossip, And then there's those who love to tell it. Anything that destroys the fellowship of the church today will not be found in the city of God tomorrow. Now, I'll tell you this. Don't sit there and say, well, I'm glad that's not me. Because all of us at some point at one time in our lives have been those who through sin have disrupted the peace and purity of the church. And all of those disruptions of peace and purity are expressions of sin that deny the lordship of Christ and his holy call on our lives. Now is the time to repent. Whether it is repentance of denial of Christ or the disruption of the body. In fact, in light of this text, Doug Kelly writes in his commentary, From God's point of view, The only final disaster is refusal to repent of one's sins and believe in Christ. True faith in Christ always involves repentance. 
for it enthrones him as Lord of life, which always entails massive changes and profoundest repentance. So here is what I would leave you with. To the one who is in their sins, seek obedience through repentance. To the one who has denied Christ, embrace him. For one day the gates will be closed. And I say this, I want you all there with me. Not because I'm there, but because Christ is there. And you will get to drink freely of the river of life. And there you will dwell with the triune God forever. Because God is there. In glory and in peace. But outside the walls, it is not that God is not present. He is present and he is angry. And he burns with eternal wrath against the refusal, the denial of his lordship. And so I would echo what Kelly says here, Dr. Kelly. The only final disaster for you is to remain in your sin. And so I call you to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Lord.